This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I'm Norman Lau, and we have yet another fantastic show for all of our red shirts out there in Trek FM land. And with me always is Standard Orbit's Mr. Ataz, Jeffrey Harlan. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm just popping in between alternate realities. Uh, you know, time travel lets you do that. You go back and then follow one branch or the other and kind of cross the streams and gets a little... Uh, Wibbly wobbly. Wibbly wobbly, primey wimey, as I think we can probably say. The funny thing is about what Jeff is saying is, is that goes right to the heart of what we're going to be talking about tonight because Star Trek has undergone quite a bit of temporal mechanics. And I use air quotes around temporal mechanics because that's really saying it lightly. If you actually took a look, a topographical look at the temporal shifting that has happened throughout the course of pretty much every series up until the movies, it would look like a shattered spider web to the 10th power. There's a lot going on. And what we want to talk about tonight is the altered reality of Star Trek, the alterations in the timeline, how the timeline has been pretty much affected in certain ways that make sense and then certain ways make absolutely no sense. So Jeff actually wrote on January 27th of this year, 2016, a blog that I'd like for him to talk about. And I'd like to quote him on this. I'd like to quote his very first paragraph on his blog. Now, his blog is titled The Altered Reality of Star Trek. And he said, quote, in May 2009, the 11th Star Trek feature film boldly went where no Trek had gone before, rebooting and reimagining the franchise under the aegis of producer slash director J.J. Abrams. The film paid homage to the previous Star Trek continuity via a time travel plot that resulted in massive changes to history and a new timeline now only loosely connected to the original was born, end quote. So that's going to be the premise for the show tonight. And I know that there is going to be a fantastic amount of conversation that's going to happen in the Babel conference. So I'd like for Jeff to actually take the helm here and discuss a little bit about why he chose to write this particular blog 
and what inspired him to do so. So, Jeff, take it away, please. Yeah, nobody ever seems to be able to uh, pin down a name for this new reality. Um, you know, some people call it New Trek, some people call it the JJ Verse, some people call it the Reboot Movies or the New Timeline. I just call it the ST11 timeline, uh, just because it's the 11th Star Trek film. So ST for Star Trek and 11 for the 11th film. It seems simpler and makes a little more sense to me. Um, but uh, you know, clearly the the timeline was significantly altered. I mean, just looking at the movies and the story that went on in the in the movies. But the question in my mind remained: At what point did this timeline diverge from the original? You know. At first glance, it looks like it was when Nero attacked the Kelvin in 2233, but at the same time, there were things that didn't quite fit and didn't quite line up for me, and so I think it happened a lot earlier than that. Um, but first, uh, I'm going to you know, stick with what's seen on the films uh, on screen and on TV. Um, I, I don't want to step on the toes of the other shows out there, you know, literary treks or uh, uh, any of the others. Um, and I could go into a lot more detail like I did on my blog because I included the the comics and the novelizations and the novels and everything on that. But and the video game, too. But um, for th- for this show, I'm, I'm just going to limit it just to the uh, to the um, what was seen in the films and on the other shows uh, from the original series. And time travel is pretty confusing stuff so i'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible because uh uh there's there's an old saying uh take this bag of snakes and lay them straight Uh, that's what i'm going to try to do um (laughs) i love that that's fantastic you're right you know especially when it comes to the original series at least the timeline wasn't as convoluted at the time you know we were only dealing with 79 episodes plus the cage so the uh, the infection or the uh, the contamination wasn't as uh, prolific as it was later on. And for all of you who wish to see and read this blog, please go to jeffrey.theharlands, that's T-H-E-H-A-R-L-A-N-S dot net, and then you'll be able to find his blog there. Because it is, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, that's 13 pages that you wrote on this? Um, Yeah, I converted it into a PDF and uh, um, it printed out at like 13 pages long. It's four pages of that was just the footnotes and citations of all of the references that I made because I studied history in college. So I wrote this like I would an academic paper for uh, uh, for like a a history journal or something. Um, I thoroughly researched and, um, you know, cited everything. And it shows because. One of the reasons that I think that you felt compelled to do this, because when I was sitting there watching 2009, there were certain things that just triggered what happened in your memory banks in comparison to what you knew of the original series versus what you're seeing in the 2009 series. And for the sake of this show, we're going to label it as the original series is prime because that's how it is out there right now on social media. And for this show, we're going to call it New Trek. 
because it's not really technically the JJ verse, although JJ is responsible for it. But obviously, we're going to have different creatives aside from JJ taking care of that. So we have the Prime Universe and we have New Trek. So New Trek's the JJ verse, the reboot movies, a new timeline. No one can really pin down a name for all of what's happening with the continuity, but we're going to try and make a little bit more sense of it here. The first thing that we need to do, though, is to define the terms of what we're talking about and limit this test of what we're calling the alternate timeline versus an alternate reality versus an alternate universe. Jeff, you and I have had extensive discussions about this, either private messaging or in person. And I think you and I both agree that all of these definitions, reality, universe, timeline, they all stem from one central source. If you're thinking about it visually, think of it as the base of a tree being the Big Bang is kind of like the roots of that tree. Everything is kind of forming up, and then things start to take their tangent divergences from that source. And that's where you have the prime timeline versus this other timeline, and new track versus other timelines. So where do you think we have a commonality in the timeline, and then we can finally say, here is where everything is free nominal, and things start to diverge well, from there. I, I think that uh, the two are fairly recently split off from each other. Um, probably within the last, you know, century or so. Um, I think you know the the split. I don't think happened in twenty two thirty three. I think it happened earlier than that, but not by too far because you know the the designs of ships are still the same. People are still the same. I mean, if you go back far enough and split the timeline off, you're going to have people that are not going to be born. For our listeners, 2233 is the year of. What are we what is uh, what is the reference point that you're talking about here? Yeah, that's that's the beginning of the um, 11th Star Trek movie, uh, 2009. Okay, Uh, that's when the Kelvin got destroyed by Nero. And that was the first big split. So that would be star date 2233. Yes. Okay. Yeah the the new film uh, universe has a, a new star date system that hasn't been seen in any of the Star Treks previous to this either, and that's that's another thing that I, I think is a little odd. Um, I'm perfectly fine with having a different star date system that's being used before the original because this is almost this is a good 30 years before the original series took place uh, at the time that the Kelvin was destroyed and okay they have a different start date system it's apparently based off of the calendar on earth because it's the year dot and then whatever day and that's not what they use on the original series but that's fine but then later on Spock's ship from the future uses that system and that gets confusing um, I, I think that might have just been an oversight or they just left it because they don't want to confuse casual fans. That's, that's also a possibility. Um, but, uh, I, I, like I was saying, if you go back too far and you split the timeline off from something happening, then people are going to be born that weren't born in one timeline, or they won't be born that were born in the original timeline. And by the time you get too far in the future, there's just a totally different population. You aren't going to have Kirk. You're not going to have Spock because the events that led to them being born or their ancestors being born just weren't there. So the timelines are still fairly close. Um, so I don't think the split happened too far in the, in the past for them. Now, we had this really interesting discussion about reality versus timeline. And I think that 
just for our listeners' sake, just to clarify that, you and I both agreed that timelines are one thing and the reality of something is another. And the best way for us to really describe that for people to kind of like wrap their brain around it is the timeline is really only understood and affected in terms of manipulating someone's reality if someone in that particular reality knows enough that their timeline is being affected. So I'm actually going to shift from the original series to where I think is probably one of the best examples of that. For all of the Next Generation fans out there, and for pretty much any Star Trek fan in general, we love the episode Yesterday's Enterprise because it has to do with a very significant shift in the timeline when the Enterprise C comes forward in time from that temporal rift during the Battle of Narendra Three, And when that happens, we see, as the viewers, a shift in time. However, Guinan, as a character, actually feels a shift in time. She becomes an actual fixed point in the temporal continuity who knows that something has changed. So the definitions of alternate reality and alternate timeline converge on her because she knows being an Elorian perhaps has that type of really detailed perception of what is going on. So when you're dealing with the factors of alternate reality versus alternate timeline, you really can only make that distinction if you, as the observer of what's going on, knows exactly what's happening. And when in 2009, Prime Spock in his jellyfish ship returns to the past, he knows that he's returned to the past, but the people in the new timeline, the Kirk, the Kirk and the Spock and all the crew of the Enterprise, they don't know anything has changed until new universe Spock, Zachary Quinto, has that great scene saying that, in fact, we don't know that time actually did change when Spock and, well, when actually the Narendra, um, sorry, when the Narada attacked the Kelvin, that point changed history. So... It is confusing, but if you really pay attention to what's going on, I think that alternate timeline and alternate reality are very much sides of the same coin. Do you agree with that, Jeff? Yeah, there. I, I think uh, there's could be an argument that's made that the difference between the two is really just semantic, and it's more on uh, when you have a timeline shift that has gotten so far removed from the, another branch of the timeline that the two just don't even resemble each other anymore. Then you could say they're alternate realities. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, we're starting to see some of that in this new timeline because things are branching off away from what they were in the original timeline so much that there are beginning to be significant changes even only two movies in now before we get more into the movie changes there were very uh specific pieces of evidence in the original series that you and i have talked about and you have listed here in the show notes and a couple of them are and i think that most of the original series fans would agree with us that let's talk about the alternative factor and let's talk about lazarus and the antimatter dimension Even though it had not necessarily um, a huge dynamic in terms of the temporal shift in time and space, it did have an opening for an alternate reality. So what did you think about that when they tried to, to show that illustration of 
there's a matter, there's a matter universe, a positive universe and an antimatter universe that are existing or coexisting in the same space. Yeah. That I would definitely say, uh, qualifies under the, the alternate reality. The shift between those two had to have occurred at the big bang. So you have one chain of events where the universe is basically f- composed primarily of matter and positive, uh, you know, you have, uh, protons, neutrons, and electrons, and then you have another reality where the uh, the majority of the matter that's making up the universe has the opposite charge. So it's you know anti-protons uh, and uh, you know uh, positrons instead. And another example that it's a little bit more of a headache because transporter in kind of like this deus ex machina type of way is always used to kind of rectify situations at the end of Star Trek. And in Tomorrow is Yesterday, Jeff, you had a very specific example of how the timeline could have been affected the way that the transporter was used. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, at the the end of the episode, they had traveled back in time to, uh, I believe it was uh, 1969. I, I think they made a reference in the episode to the upcoming moon launch, which was a reference to Apollo 11, which hadn't even happened when they made the episode yet. And uh, which is just interesting because they got so many of the details right in that episode, um, just down to the fact that they launched it on a Friday. Um, (laughs) But uh, they ended the episode how they had taken Captain Christopher onto the Enterprise. He had seen all this stuff from the future and they were going to take him back to the future with them until they realized that his son that hadn't even been born yet was going to be a major uh, player in the events to come. And so they travel back in time by a few days so that they can beam the, the captain Christopher that they had on the ship back into his own body and merged the two somehow in the transporter and rematerialized him inside of his cockpit in the matter of, you know, the span of a couple of seconds. And, they did this again on uh, uh, Voyager uh, with uh, Seven of Nine and Relativity, um, and they are basically it's Im- unclear how much of his memories of that other timeline where he spent all that time on the Enterprise he remembers, um, and that could have had a an effect on the on the future of that timeline. They could have caused a shift where when they showed up back in their own future it's a little bit different because now you have somebody in the past who remembered the future and it made some minor changes and some little ripples that went forward through the timeline. I mean, I'm not a techno babbly kind of guy, but I do remember that when someone is transported, that their essence is stored, their essence, I quote unquote, air quote that is stored in the pattern buffer for, for um, basically their, their skeletal, architecture, their memories, their pattern, all that kind of stuff is stored in the pattern buffer. So if they actually transported Captain Christopher to the ship, then the essence of Captain Christopher in the pattern buffer is the version of him that they transported at the time. So does that overwrite like everything that he was before they transported him back in time? Does that overwrite the, all of the, 
memories that he's created and all the knowledge that he's accumulated to the point where they just kind of, it's like a hard drive. You just basically rewrite the format and then just copy a whole new file on top of a file that's, that actually has progress to it. Is that the same thing? That seemed to be the implication. Um, and it's, like I said, it's unclear how much, you know, data creep, uh, so to speak, you know, could have bled over from the old Captain Christopher onto this new merged Captain Christopher. And it's also unclear how they prevented his uh, his airplane from being destroyed by the tractor beam by the other Enterprise in the past. No, that's true. It's it's interesting that, you know, it's when you're, when you're dealing with a lot of these time travel situations, I think sometimes the writers are getting a little bit more ahead of themselves and probably think that they're a little bit more clever than they are. They do pose a lot of great questions, like, say, in Assignment Earth, especially with the character of Gary Seven. Now, everyone who's watched Assignment Earth knows that it was a feeder show for the potential of a spinoff series. Since that technically, if you actually break down the numbers, like half the episode has to deal with introducing the original series characters in the episode just to anchor it. And then you have the great uh, Robert Lansing with his epic voice and Terry Garr anchoring the second half of that episode. But there is still the issue with who he is, how he affects the timeline and his story moving forward. And I have to say this just to say this, a sonic type screwdriver really (laughs) and Isis is his companion I mean I love it but the similarities to Doctor Who are a little thick so what did you think about his story and how it and the references of how he was affecting the future timelines well even if the Enterprise hadn't been there to intercept the transporter that was sending him from another planet another star system into Earth uh, if the Enterprise hadn't been there, he still would probably have uh, destroyed that uh, nuclear launch, uh, nuclear missile orbital launch platform that was being sent up. Uh, that was his mission. He prob- I'm certain that he would have accomplished it. But then with the introduction of the Enterprise from the future into that equation, he was inadvertently exposed to information about his own future. Uh, they... Spock and Kirk both made comments that to the effect that he was going to play an important role in the events to come. And we know that uh, from other episodes, the eugenics wars was just about 20 years after this. So the implication was pretty heavy that Gary seven was involved in the eugenics wars somehow. And with that knowledge, 20 years in advance, you know, that could very well have changed the future that Kirk and Spock came from. Well, when you actually think about it, when you are given just a little bit of information about how you are affecting not only your own destiny with the destiny of things to come, that's actually a really interesting point. And perhaps Zachary Fruling and Mike Morrison over there in Literary Treks might have a counterpoint to this because what we're talking about in terms of temporal mechanics, they may counterpoint with well, these are all predestined timelines already. So, but that's a that's a completely different thing. It's not a challenge to you guys at all. It's just something for you guys to you know probably think about in terms of a, a possible show topic. And the last thing I actually a really good example of seeing something from the alternate timeline versus alternate reality fixed point is the ion storm in Mirror Mirror. 
because at the very beginning of Mirror Mirror, Kirk is negotiating with the Hulken ambassador and saying that, you know, we, we would like to work with you to have access to your dilithium crystal mining facility. We'd like to be able to work with you. And then the Ion Storm has this great and old school kind of flipping type of dynamic where you see things move back and forth. And the fixed point in time is when they're beaming, when Kirk and his crew and the Mirror Universe Kirk and his crew, they're beaming at the same time. And you know both of them are having this out-of-body experience saying that this isn't my timeline. They know that. They have that actual reaction. All the actors played it off very well. So they know something happened. It's not a shift in time. It's a shift in reality. So somewhere along this line of logic, time and reality are simultaneous. Would you agree with that, Jeff? Yeah, and this ties back to what you were saying earlier. They are aware that something has changed. It's not something that you see very often uh, in these time travel stories where change has been made and everything changes around them and only occasionally are they aware of it. And there are so many different details that show you that they are in the same timeline, but the reality is different. Matter of fact, when Dr. McCoy goes, when they all go, when the, I'm going to say good Kirk and his crew, when they go to sickbay and Dr. McCoy says, you know, everything's changed around and upside down, but he goes, but wait a minute, I spilled acid on this table a week ago. And that same physical characteristic is still there. That means that they are moving in the same temporal cadence of their alternate universe. So with this example, those branches that you were talking about, Jeff, earlier on, those parallel tree branches are very, very similar, if not right next to each other in terms of their development in, as, as temporal mechanics go. So I find that really fascinating when it comes to understanding what we know of temporal mechanics and their shift in this timeline versus what we're going to next. And that is projecting all of these different types of temporal issues with how the appearance of the Narada changed things in 2009. You have done a great deal of study on this. So you have a couple of different theories that you want to posit here for, uh, for the show. One of those changes directly caused by Nero when the Narada arrived to basically take out the Kelvin when they moved backwards in time from the prime universe to the new Trek universe. So what, what, what did you think about that when you were watching it in the theater and knowing Star Trek the way that you do, did it cause any type of reaction to you from a fan standpoint versus a historian standpoint? Well, I was just immediately thinking that, uh, well, this is first few seconds. Narada shows up start shooting at the Kelvin things are going very badly for the Kelvin and it's pretty obvious that it's going to get destroyed. And I, my first thought was, well, this is how they're changing the timeline. Uh, that it was the easiest way for them to get away from everything that had been done before by traveling back in time and making a change that is so drastic, like destroying a ship that everything else from that point on changes. 
And once that happened, it was, you know, there, there's, there's no telling what would happen next. I mean, they could do anything right down to destroying Vulcan. At least a half a dozen people were killed in the, the destruction of the Kelvin. Uh, you had the captain and a bunch of people got blown out into space when, uh, when the hull was breached. Vulcan gets destroyed. Billions of people are killed. I mean, that's incalculable what's going to happen to the timeline. So starting with the Narada, you have Kirk's father, you have George Kirk, and mm-hmm. then you have Captain Rabot, mm-hmm. both of whom who probably would have had very robust lives affecting the timeline if they survived. So and the Kelvin itself and all of the missions and all the data and all of the history that it would have affected if the Kelvin's mission in fact succeeded and made it back to Starfleet. So you have this and Rabot was gone. We don't know how he would have affected the timeline. He could have been a Starfleet, uh, you know, someone who taught at Starfleet, a Starfleet professor. We don't know. His history is gone, has been erased. Obviously, we know the ramifications of what happened since George Kirk was killed then. And Jim Kirk was prematurely born during the time of that battle. So we know how in the prime universe, we know how much of an inspiration and a rock that his father was to James T. And that wasn't there. So we know that that changed the timeline in terms of the overall tapestry of galactic politics. Things changed in 2233 because of Nero's appearance. What do you think in terms of what we didn't see was going on and what can we extrapolate from this alternate now it's an alternate timeline it's not an alternate reality it's an alternate timeline because of nero and the narada coming in from the prime universe from and i'm not sure of the start is but all the way back to 2233 i mean he's bringing back technology and i don't like uh, i mean i don't like going off topic here but the technology that he brought back from the narada was borg enhanced thanks to the appropriation of Borg technology by the Tal Shiar. That was from what Countdown to 2009, a comic book. So yeah, that was the the Countdown comic. That was co-plotted by uh, Orchi and Kurtzman, right? And it was it, that was directly referenced in the uh, um, the mind meld flashback in the movie. Right. And, and not to not like I said, not to step on literary treks, um, you know, too much with the comic books, but. There was a lot going on with the Narada. It just wasn't a mining ship anymore. I mean, it was a it was a Borg enhanced attack ship created specifically for doing this one particular job. So when it was destroyed, now you have bits and pieces of Borg technology floating around the flotsam and the jetsam when the Klingons are moving in because they were only so far away. I mean, we knew that the Klingon incursion was happening then. Because there's a cutscene that shows that uh, Nero was appropriated or that he was absconded by the Klingons uh, in a torture scene that was cut out. So that happened. And you know, probably the technology of the Narada was you know, taken by the Klingons to be broken down and studied. So that in and of itself changes like the power struggle you know, with the Klingons. Because now they can start basically re-engineering or reverse engineering what happened with all of that technology that was just floating around after the, the uh, Kelvin was destroyed. Well, and in turn destroying the Narada, do you think that affected the timeline at all? No, absolutely. The, uh, um, the Narada wasn't completely destroyed. It was just disabled right. and it was, it was captured, um, in that, that cut scene. You can see it's being, uh, it's being surrounded by uh, Klingon warbirds 
or you know whatever you want to call them. Uh, they they called them warbirds in the in the movie. Um, and when you cut to twenty five years later, uh, when the bulk of the movie takes place, it starts off with Uhura getting the distress signal from Klingon space um, that the ship has escaped from Rorapente. Uh, Nero and his crew were there and apparently the ship was being held there as well and they stole it they they broke out they stole it and used it destroyed 47 Klingon ships I mean that's another huge change right there um and then when we get to the Klingon ships that we see in Into Darkness they look like nothing we've ever seen for Klingon ships before and they're massive and they look like they have had some kind of enhancement from uh, studying the uh, the Narada. You know, that's a really good point. 47 Klingon ships. I mean, that was probably a good portion of their fleet that was destroyed. The same thing when the Enterprise and all the ships responded to the attack on Vulcan. Most of Starfleet was wiped out by one ship at that time. Think about the political, economic, and just overall spiritual ramifications of what was happening to both of these governments. That changes. And the, well, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, the Romulans are the only ones that are unaffected by this. And this was caused by a Romulan ship that they don't know is from the future. And so both of these wounded empires are now looking at Romulus like, maybe we should be going to war with you. Right. It's really interesting to see it from kind of like pulling back and restudying the films because when you really think about it I mean 47 ships and I'm not sure how many ships were destroyed and you know during you know over Vulcan but that's a significant amount of resources and technology and personnel that have been literally blinked out of existence you don't know if any of those captains would have affected the future of any of these governments I mean obviously we know when we go all the way back to the Kelvin that Kirk was born under a certain amount of drama and stress. So obviously he was changed and the way that he grew up was changed because he didn't have George Kirk, his father. He only had Winona and his stepfather taking care of him. So that dynamic, the person that we knew as James T. Kirk was changed. And I know you feel very strongly about this, Jeff. So I very, I'd, I'd like for you to talk about this a little bit and how the history of James T. Kirk was changed in this alternate timeline. Yeah, the uh, um, the scene that we see with him as a boy stealing the car, uh, there was a cut scene that takes place right before that, and in that you see the the guy that uh, uh, Kirk and his older brother are referring to as Uncle Frank. You know, it's not really clear if he's a stepfather or is actually the uncle. Um, uh, they. He's verbally abusive. He's threatening physical abuse against the boys. The car was originally their father's, and he's planning to sell it, which is why he was having Kirk shine it up so that he could sell it for a higher price. So Kirk steals the car while his brother is running away. That's the boy he passed on the road. Uh, and Right, that was in the novelization tr- of, of the story. Yeah, yeah, and that was also in the, uh, the, the cut mm-hmm. scene. Um, and... That's why he drove it off the cliff, because he could not bear to see one of the last things that he had to remember his father by get sold off by this guy. You know, it's interesting that um, one of the the key events are changing the timeline in the new universe so dramatically. And I think that 
accepting the fact that this is an alternate timeline is probably a way for a lot of the fans to heal and reconcile what is happening with with their original series as seen in 2009. You and I are both very much um, passionate fans of the original series. And when we saw what was happening in 2009, I think the only way that we could really digest that and accept it moving forward was if this was an alternate timeline. And they did a really good job in fostering a lot of these ideas because you have, yes, you have Jim Kirk being born a certain way. He's no longer the textbook with legs, you know, as his friend, you know, as, as Gary said, you know, in, in where uh, no one was gone before, you know, the second pilot of the original series. We always knew that this James T. Kirk from the Prime Universe was very matured, very well-educated, very experienced, and he went through every single possible by-the-book way of becoming a captain that we did not see in 2009. In the Babel Conference, I know this is probably going to be a point of contention, but I'd like to address this anyway. The James T. Kirk that we saw in the Prime Universe and the James T. Kirk that we have in the New Universe are different characters. They, Very. Yes, they are. Yeah. They are. I mean, that is just a sheer fact of the matter. And I know that it's hard to accept. It was hard to me for me to accept it first, too. I mean, I literally needed a tranquilizer to go into 2009 because I said, this is not my James T. Kirk. However, I think it is a very bold move and a very big uh, and controversial decision, maybe. But you have to be able to make this point of distinction in order to make this timeline move forward. So we have Kirk being affected, but even more so. We have Spock being affected with the destruction of Vulcan. And with that, we know for a fact that it has definitely changed the timeline because now anyone who was on Vulcan that had any type of influence over the next however many centuries, if Vulcan still existed, has changed. So, Jeff, I mean, you have this as a point here. It's it's I mean, you have to accept the fact that now this is a new timeline because of what happened to Vulcan. It's too dramatic of a point. Yeah, and because of the the event of uh, the destruction of Vulcan, I mean, he's far more open to exploring his human heritage than he was at this point in the timeline, in the original timeline. He wasn't this comfortable with his human half until decades later, after his death and rebirth in Star Trek three and four. Uh, now in this new timeline, you've got him in a relationship with Uhura, grieving the loss of his mother the loss of his planet, everyone that he ever knew on that planet that uh, didn't make it off in time. And he said in the movie that only 10,000 people made it off out of billions. I mean, that's just almost impossible to, to imagine that kind of a you know, loss of life. It's staggering. Yeah, and you know, the interesting thing about this point is that think about all, okay, so let's, let's extrapolate this to the next generation and to deep space nine and to Voyager, all the different captains in the Vulcan fleet, all the different personnel, the ambassadors, and the people that have furthered on science and technology and medicine and all these different types of disciplines, they're gone. So it has to directly affect the way that the timeline moves forward. Let's take it like another, you know, 100 so years. And the Vulcans that interacted with the cast of The Next Generation don't exist. They don't exist in this timeline, which means... Tuvok does not exist. Tuvok does not exist in this timeline. So eventually and logically, his relationship with Janeway does not exist. 
So whatever relationship and advice that he gave Janeway to create Janeway's character does not exist. She becomes a completely different character. So that's, I mean, that is extraordinary when you really think about it. It's hard to kind of wrap your brain around how many ripples in time that affects when you, when you basically take this and overlay this on the entirety of every single series, because now you're taking the series that you know, and the series from this new Trek timeline, overlaying the dynamics that happened and all the relationships and all of the events have changed. And I think that is absolutely fascinating to think about when it comes to this overall temporal mechanic that is Star Trek. But those are like the direct results of what happened with what the Narendra, what the uh, Narendra, I keep saying Narendra, Narendra and Narada are so close. You have to forgive me. But what the Narada did. So, but what about some of the smaller changes that weren't directly affected? There are some points, Jeff, that you actually brought up in your blog post that, that weren't a direct result of Nero and the Narada coming back. Can you explain a couple of these? Yeah, there, there was a few things that, uh, even after looking at it and thinking about it, I just keep scratching my head because I just can't see how they would be connected to the destruction of either the Kelvin or a Vulcan or of these Klingon ships for that matter. Um, the, the first one that struck, stuck out to me was the movie has the enterprise being launched in 2258. Uh, they gave the start date 2258.42. Uh, so we're looking at uh, February 11th, 2258. In the original timeline, it's been well established that the Enterprise was launched in 2245. That's 13 years difference. And there's no clear answer for why that happened. Uh, and it gets even more complicated when you look when you consider the comics, but we're not going to look into those right now. But there's... A, my thinking is maybe if you want the only possible thing that I can think of is that after the Kelvin was destroyed, they have the scans of the Narada that were brought back by the Kelvin shuttles. Uh, and maybe they took that and the constitution class was just kind of a germ of an idea at this point, And they took it right back down and started over and used this new information and that delayed the launch of the Constitution class by 13 years. But even that is kind of stretching it because that's a long time to delay that uh, just from uh, from that incident. And you know, there's there's uh, um, some other uh, complications that uh, check off. In this new timeline, it's four years older. In the episode, uh, Who Mourns for Adonis, takes place in 2267. Chekhov said he was 22 years old. That means he was born in 2245, which oddly makes him the same age as the Enterprise. Um, in the new movies, he said that he was 17 at the launch of the Enterprise in 2258. That means he was born in 2241. So maybe somehow his parents had a kid four years earlier because of what happened to the, the Kelvin but that was eight years before that, and that seems implausible to me that it would have the ripple of that, uh, you know, causing Chekhov's parents to get together and have a kid four years earlier. And we don't know how old Chekhov's parents were because very little has ever been established about them other than that he is the only child. And in the new timeline, we don't even know that anymore. 
So let's take a look at, and I, I want to ask you this, this isn't part of our notes, but I want to ask you a question. It's just kind of like out of the blue. It's something I just thought about right now. So how, how do the fans reconcile what has happened in all of the episodes that they've memorized and the movies and the timeline that they know versus what's happening in 2009 and into darkness and eventually into beyond. How do we reconcile our fans, our listeners to these two different timelines? What's the best piece of advice that we can give them in order to come to some type of acceptance of what's going on? Do we just basically tell them from 1966 to 2009 this is how it was. And then from 2009 forward, this is how it is. Or is there a legitimate reason for accepting multiple timelines? Um, I mean, I guess if you really wanted to boil it down to it, it's like infinite timelines and infinite combinations. I-T-I-C, if you will. I mean, I know a lot of, in science fiction, there's a lot of crossing the streams. And I know a lot of Star Trek fans are a lot of Doctor Who fans. And in Doctor Who, there's a lot of just what they just describe as wibbly wobbly and timey wimey. I mean, I know Star Trek fans love to ground their lore and their history in these very specific and very statistically proven points in the timeline. But it seems to me now that in 2009, all bets are off because of the way that they've basically said, this is, and I'm drawing a literal line in the sand on my desk. This is the timeline moving forward. Is that something that we should encourage people to accept? I think there's room for both. Uh, everything that existed before, it's still there. You can still watch the shows. You can still watch the movies, read the books, read the comics. Everything that's been published and has been released before, it's still there to enjoy. And I still enjoy it every day. The new stuff that's coming out, it's going to continue coming out. Uh, we got the new movie that's coming out in July, and I'm sure that there will be more to continue on that storyline. The new TV series is coming out in January of next year. We still don't know anything about the setting of that show. Um, so who knows what that's going to bring to us. And I think that you know, in the future, they might even do a storyline where they try to merge everything back together. And that's a possibility, too, because you got the infinite probability theory, basically that anything that could possibly happen anywhere, anytime does happen in one timeline or another, and at least one timeline or another. I mean, somebody posted on another group that I was reading today, um, they posted a picture saying that if you're having a bad day, just remember that. In this theory, somewhere there is a timeline where you are a Starfleet officer and you've saved Earth at least once. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny that you bring that up because social media like brings so much information to us and, and, and so many different possibilities. I do think that one of our hosts on Trek FM, Brandon Shea Mutala, actually wrote or posted a picture about, and I think it was from Court Martial, when they were talking about all the different accolades that Kirk received, and, and, and I think he couched it in the, uh, you know, it was the um, palm leaf, the, the uh, peace leaf of Axanar. And when Kirk put his hand on the computer terminal and the terminal basically output all of the awards, I mean, it was a, I mean, it was a cascade of awards that he received during the course of his tenure, even before he was command of the Enterprise. 
that was Kirk of the Prime timeline. Doesn't necessarily invalidate the Kirk of the New Trek timeline. So we know of all of the great and heroic and noble and honorable causes that James T. Kirk of the Prime timeline was responsible for. But it doesn't necessarily negate the possibilities of what the new Trek Kirk has in store for him. The future is still unwritten. And we're seeing a little bit of that in all of the different escapades that he has with, you know, he did with 2009. I mean, think about it this way. I mean, he was the one who took down Nero. No other Starfleet captain, experienced Starfleet captain, was able to do that. Now, yes, he was delayed for several seconds, or he also could have been destroyed during that attack on Vulcan. But it was his ability as this particular Kirk, his brash impulsiveness that allowed him to be able to do what he did to take on Nero and the Narada and be successful there. And to be able to inspire Spock to be able to follow his almost insanity style plan because Spock was like, I'm not on board with this, but the trust became part of their friendship and became part of that relationship and created a new destiny for these two characters. So I guess what I'm saying is that give this timeline a chance because there is a lot of possibility that is happening. And with all timelines, I mean, who knows? I mean, in the future of the new TV series, they could explore a completely different timeline or a different reality. So there are so many different ways to slice this pie. I think this pie has been sliced pretty much infinitely. Don't you think, Jeff? Yeah. And there's been so much time travel in Star Trek, even just in the original series. I mean, they had three time travel episodes in the first season alone. Uh, there's lots of things that could have gotten changed. I mean, I, I'm of the opinion that uh, the timeline that we saw in The Cage was about the only time that we ever saw the actual prime timeline. Pure everything timeline, since right? Then, yeah. Yeah. Everything since then has been, like, altered and changed somehow. I mean, you've got, um, you know, this new timeline. A lot of that future time travel that happened in the, all these episodes that we've watched over the course of 50 years never happened because those adventures have yet to occur. So maybe in this new timeline, the enterprise wasn't sent back. So they never met Gary seven. Uh, so he doesn't have the same impact on the, how the eugenics wars unfolded because he doesn't have that hint of the future that he got from Kirk and Spock. Uh, maybe the guardian, they don't find the guardian of forever. Or if they do, McCoy doesn't accidentally inject himself with an overdose of Cordrazine, you know, tricky stuff. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> You know, and when he goes back in time, he's delusional. And the first thing that happens is he vaporizes a guy on the street. Well, technically, the guy uh, vaporizes himself. Well, yes, yeah. the, the guy vaporized himself. Yeah. But it would not have happened if McCoy had not been there with his phaser. Right. And if that time travel never happened, then what impact did that person have on the future? Right. Because maybe he ended up saving the life of a kid that stepped out into traffic who now died in that altered timeline without him. And that kid grows up to be some important leader or scientist or revolutionary or who knows. Mm -hmm. um, that could have had a huge impact on the timeline, causing some of the changes that we saw in this new timeline, just because that time travel event didn't happen. You know, 
crossing the streams a little bit over into Next Generation, you had the Davidians that were going back and sucking the life force out of people in uh, the 19th century uh, when they ran into Mark Twain at San Francisco. The Enterprise D crew went back and stopped them. But now in this future timeline, maybe they're not there to do that. Who knows how many more people get killed by the Davidians in that. You know, just um, before we start wrapping up the show here, there's a really interesting thing that, and it kind of like caught my attention, especially in, in Into Darkness, when there was this really nice scene where Admiral Marcus was talking to Kirk and Spock, and then they have this really nice shot of all of the different Enterprises. I mean, starting with the Vengeance, well, not the Enterprises, but the Starfleet ships, starting with the Vengeance, going back to all the different Enterprises, all the way back to the NX-01. The NX-01 is a fixed point in this universe. And you, I mean, you saw that as clear as day. I mean, I have the Art Asylum ship, you know, on my credenza back here, and it looked exactly the same as the ship that he has. He has the ring ship. He has the Phoenix. I mean, he has pretty much like he has the Eagle Moss collection on his credenza. So that being said, somewhere along the line, this root tree timeline is somewhat stable from when we saw Enterprise up until, I don't know, when do you think it converged here? Because we're seeing something from obviously 2251. I mean, that is when the Enterprise launched. It was 2251 to 2261. It was the tenure of the NX-01. So when do you think it changed? That's the other thing is that Enterprise had a lot of interference from the future, from the Temporal Cold War. Those factions might not have existed or maybe had a different form in this new timeline so their impact on the past is different because now they're on a different branch of the future so you have different factions going back so maybe that altered how things happened you know maybe the first contact with the klingons and the suliban happened a little bit differently who knows and then there's this grand theory out there that the enterprise series itself is an alternate timeline based on what happened with first contact so if you really take a look at all the ways that the timeline has been affected over the course of in-universe and out-of-universe, because I'm not sure if the writers of all the different Star Trek series had this universal Bible of temporal mechanics not to step on. I mean, I know this is... I a, highly doubt it. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and this is an original series show, but I think one of the best things that they ever did with a timeline show is in More Troubles, More Tribbles. Because those two temporal agents, they just looked so depressed when they were talking about, oh, James D. Kirk, that guy again. 17 separate violations. Exactly. So they almost made fun. They poked direct fun at how many different ways that Star Trek in and of itself has affected its own timeline. Right. And I think it was great because it was just it was very tongue in cheek, but it's true. And I'm sure like all of the very serious fans out there to the casual fans, they can even I mean, even the casual fans can tell. Yeah, they kind of just fold time on each other, you know, on every single episode, you know, whenever they want to just to be able to, you know, to be able to tell the story. And that's partially true. I mean, you know, the writers are out there and they're like, well, what's going to make for an interesting story this time? I don't know. Uh, like in the uh, in the case of the uh, alternative, not the alternative factor, but of uh, Assignment Earth, let's slingshot around the sun. I mean, that, it pretty much starts out the way that Star Trek Four's premise of trying to get back in time starts out. You know, all of a sudden it be, it's it's more it's protocol instead of attempt. 
You know, they said that it was it was an actual maneuver that was used to travel back in time to 1968. I'm like, when did that? Yeah, the first time the first time they used it in Tomorrow's Yesterday, it was an accident. Right. And then they realized, well, we can do it on purpose. And they used it like three or four times in the shows. Exactly. And it was just weird that. I guess it's a matter of convenience. I mean, time travel is always a, a, a way for writers to be able to say, okay, we want to be able to do certain things, change certain things. Obviously, in 2009, the writers like Orsi and Kurtzman and J.J. Abrams, his influence up to a point said, you know what? The only way we're going to be able to make a clear division between what happened the, was it 2009? That would have made it like 47 years prior to us or 45 years prior to what's happening is to create this grand division of what was and what will be. And I understand that it probably didn't translate as well as they wanted to. And obviously there's been some discontent amongst the fans, but it is what it is. And that's the way it's moving forward. And as fans of the original series, I encourage all of you, Jeff and I encourage all of you to be able to find at least the value and the positivity in that. So in our final thoughts, I mean, Jeff, you have this 13 page paper that you wrote and there's so much that we haven't been able to talk about. So I just wanted to ask you if there was at least one kind of sticking point that you would want to leave with our listeners before, um, before we get to our, our closing statements. Well, the first thing I would remind everyone is that they have stated several times that this used the, uh, quantum, time travel uh, theories that are a little more current than have been used in the past. And that basically says that when you travel back in time, it's like back to the future, you travel back in time. When you show up in the past, that creates a new timeline that branched off the original because in the original you weren't there, but now you're in a new timeline where you were the original timeline still exists, but now you're just on a new timeline that's been branched off of it. The original timeline was not destroyed. It's still there. It's still going on. People are still kicking. They just think Spock and Nero were dead. And actually, this is the whole point of the backstory for Star Trek Online. It takes place like 20-something years after this. uh, Spock and Nero disappeared. Everybody thinks they're dead. Life went on. And the universe continued to to, uh, spin around. uh, And that's a really good point. And that goes all the way back to... The reality, the alternate reality versus the alternate timeline, the reality of what happened to Doc Brown and Marty when they diverged from the timeline, that's their reality. But in, 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 the, in the literal terms, when they left, when they blinked out of 1985, the rest of 1985 still moves forward. It's just wherever they end up becomes their reality. And I think that's a really that's a very clear way of doing it. In Back to the Future 2, there's an actual scene where Doc Brown flips over a blackboard and he said, here's our timeline. Draws a very straight linear line because here's where we've diverged from our timeline. Draws a little bit of a, of a diagonal line and then another timeline. He goes, this is where we are. But it doesn't mean that the other timeline exists. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because we want to focus on that part of the enjoyment of the original series versus the new series versus new Trek. The original timeline still exists. All the Blu-rays that you've collected and the downloads that you have in your iTunes account, all that stuff still exists. It doesn't change. 2009 is where it changed. So whether you accept that or not, the, the fact of the matter remains is that the original timeline is still there. 
you can still enjoy it for all of its worth. And there is a lot to enjoy. You can always rewatch it. We're in, Jeff and I are in the rewatch right now where we're studying episodes for this particular podcast. But it doesn't negate the fact that there is a new timeline. And I hope that all of you come at least to some acceptance of that. If you're not a fan of it, I encourage you to just listen to what we've said here on the podcast and kind of take that into consideration when you do a rewatch because there is a completely different way of spinning these characters. Yes, Kirk isn't the same way that you like him or you have liked him in the past. I understand that probably better than most. William Shatner is one of my heroes. Captain Kirk is what I grew up on. I cut my teeth on James T. Kirk growing up. I'm not wearing a command yellow hoodie for nothing on this. And I'm going to put that on a picture for the Babel conference. I mean, that's, that's just who we are. But at the same time, I like the fact that there is a new story to tell. There's a new Kirk to see, and there are new adventures ahead. So that's what I encourage you all And our job here in standard orbit for this new crew is not just to talk about these topics, but to encourage you to see the value in these topics because there are new audiences that are always coming to Star Trek, not just the audiences that are 30, 40, almost 50 years old, but there are completely, absolutely new people that are coming to the original series via Voyager, via Deep Space Nine, via the social media that advertises Star Trek because of the 50th anniversary. So please, I implore you as fans just to stay on this positive track that we're on. Uh, Jeff and I, you know, we always talk about both sides of the equation. And I think that's very important for you to understand as we're moving from episode to episode in standard orbit. So Jeff, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we go? Well, I live in hope that one day we'll see a new timeline take on Spock's brain where they give it the ending that it deserves. <laughs> wow, that would be cool, huh? If they actually redid Spock's brain in some form or another. They might do it in the yeah. comics. They've done a lot of rewrites of the episodes. That would be cool. And before we go, we actually do have a subspace signal. Hailing frequencies are open. Subspace signals are emails that came in. And I wanted to share this one with you because... It's a, it's a really interesting point. It comes from Eamon O'Donoghue from England. I love the fact. I mean, I love saying that from England. And Eamon wrote, Hey, lads, just two comments regarding your discussion on episode number 112 regarding nostalgia. Always loved TOS, but had not seen it in at least 25 years until recently. My girlfriend loves Abrams movies and never saw TOS. She's quite the feminist, too, so watching TOS with her was going to be interesting. She totally loved TOS so much that we're going to watch it again after we complete all of TNG. Of course, she noticed the massive sexism and outdated views, but she is also well aware of when these were made, so was quite forgiving. But I guess the main point is that she loved what we TOS fans love, which is the social commentary coupled with the far out funky. Also, we do, love in a t we do live in a time that these mega-realistic shows that had a lot of death and sorrow in them. Star Trek TOS is such a welcome break from that overt realism and offers some thought-provoking realism. Yeah, sure, it's not a thought-provoking as later Treks, but the actors, color, look, and feel of the show are so welcome in today's world, and I think there's room for more of it. I guess to summarize, not all nostalgia is seen through rose-tinted glasses— 
Some nostalgia is there because we yearn for what is no longer there and it was good. What do you think about that, Jeff? Pretty interesting, huh? That was just a really good uh, uh, email. I, I'm, I really enjoyed hearing that uh, and some very good points. I mean, the original series, for all of its flaws, is still something that is just really fun to watch and it brings a lot of good things, uh, good points, uh, some good uh, commentary. Some of it a lot of it actually is still very relevant today. Absolutely. And I think that's the, just the hallmark of good storytelling. Storytelling is transcendent. It tell, I mean, it is, it, it lasts the test of time. It is relevant because it is particularly good at uh, evolving with its surroundings. And I think that's what Star Trek is when you really look at it. Of course, you have your incredibly dated episodes, but overall, Star Trek, the original series, is about how we as human beings are continually trying to better ourselves for a better future. That's the optimism of Star Trek that I hold dear in my heart. I know you do, Jeff, and that's how we kind of progress forward with our enthusiasm for the original series. So thank you, Eamon, for that. It's either Eamon or Eamon, so apologize for if I didn't get your, if your name right there, but I think it's Eamon. And But it's been fantastic talking about the alternative factor, <laughs> pardon the pun, here on Standard Orbit this week. This isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. With Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, Chekhov, Scotty, Sulu... And the Enterprise, that is your crew. That is the family of the original series. And yes, we would like to see that maintained and protected and treated with reference. Earl Grey. Jordy is the one that's like, you know what? No, you're wrong. You're wrong about I'm going to drop a challenge right here. And Data's totally going to step up to the plate. And you're going to get served, Plasky. And that's how LaForge created Moriarty. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying it turned out good, but I mean, he had good intentions. (laughs) To the journey! Part of me is going, wow, this is really good. Another part of me is going, really? Like, this is what you spend your time on? I kind of wish that we could use the whole time that we allot for our podcast for you to read this synopsis, because I really enjoyed story time with Tristan. (laughs) Commentary, Trek stars. And I can see, you know, Abrams recognizing that talent and being like, you know what? I know that you can make a good movie here. You know, I'm not convinced that I can yet, but I think that you can, and I'm going to learn from you, too, so that one day I can make a Star Wars movie. The 602 Club. How do these kids work for you, especially in this first movie? It's amazing when you look back on on how far they've come and the chemistry that they had right off the bat, because from the word go, when they were on the Hogwarts Express all at the same time, that's really when it, it took off. That's really when the movie took off for me. Literary Treks. I was given a couple of mandates for uh, Beasts of Empire, one of which was, of course, jump the story ahead four years. Another was get Cisco back on a starship um, and also have Spock uh, in, in the story. Women at Warp. You can always count on DC Fontana to Vulcan things up, and I, I for one, appreciate her for that. Get Vulcan with it. Na-na-na-na-na-na. <laughs> Na-na-na-na-na-na. Get Vulcan with it. Meta Treks. 
Don't tell me you haven't wondered what it's like to be Patrick Stewart. Actually, I've wondered, I've, I've often wondered what it's like to be the Shat. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way to know. It's one of a kind. There, he's one of a kind. <laughs> he's one of a kind. Melodic tricks. But it's basically from a motivation of not treating the audience stupid, you know, treating them that they have dreams, they have imagination, they have hope, they have fear. They have all those things, and the music plays on that. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So there are a variety of ways for all of our listeners to be able to access Trek FM. Mr. Ataz, please let our listeners know all the different types of ways that can find Trek FM across subspace. You can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at TrekFM and grab the RSS link as well. And if you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to show to find the show as they search iTunes and it helps us to increase our visibility for new listeners. Now that is one way to be able to support the network and on iTunes, there are a variety of ways to show how much you enjoy what you're listening to, and especially in the form of reviews. We would love to be able to receive a review from you, our listeners, and that will help us kind of grow in the rankings and to help new listeners find the show. So that's very important to us. So if you feel that we have earned a ranking from you, please leave a review and a star ranking and let us know how we are doing as your hosts for Standard Orbit and the content that we're providing for you. There's another way of actually supporting the show, and it is very important to us, and that is through Patreon.com. And the address is Patreon.com slash TrekFM. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash TrekFM. What that is, is the opportunity for you, our listeners and supporters of Trek FM, to be able to express your fandom by directly supporting the show financially. We are an independent organization, and we do this through voluntary work. And we have a lot of different systems and resources that we have to fund in order to be able to bring us and all of these different shows to you each week. And if you go to patreon.com slash trekfm, you have a a great opportunity and variety of options to be able to connect with us here directly through the ability of becoming a donor, a patron, an associate producer, to be able to, at a certain level, directly affecting the content of the show. And I think it's at the $15 level, which is a very popular level, Jeff, that is called the patron zone. Can you tell, I mean, sorry, not the patron zone, the round table. Could you tell all of our listeners a little bit about the roundtable? Because I know that you were on the roundtable a couple of times. Yeah, I've been on the roundtable several times now. Um, like you're saying, at uh, $15 uh, per month, uh, it's just a, a time twice a month. You can get together with other fans and either Christopher Jones or Will Nguyen, and you can just sit around and talk about Star Trek. Uh, we pick a, uh, a topic in advance. Uh, everybody uh, gets some time where they can prepare and just just get themselves in the uh, in the zone to talk about it. And you just sit down and talk. It's it's just like sitting down 
with some friends at you know your local game store or uh, at a coffee house and just chatting about Star Trek. And it, it's a lot of fun. So that's the $15 level. That's the patrons round table. I believe the patron zone is a member exclusive access that you should be able to do at a $5 level, if I'm correct. Yes. yes. So that gives you access to advanced uh, cuts of the show. You have wallpapers. You have all these great digital resources. And that is uh, at a very nominal level at $5. None of this is obligatory in any way. It, these are just the offerings that we have for you, our fans, so that you can help us bring all this great content to you on a daily and weekly basis. Now, aside from patreon.com slash Trek FM, another way to support us is through, and this is very exciting, is through redbubble.com. Now, what ever I think, you know, a lot of people are familiar with Redbubble. It's a, it's a way to be able to uh, create the fandom that you'd like to wear. And on redbubble.com, if you, if you type in Trek FM into the search field, you will find just this, this catalog of great design work that is done by Aaron Harvey, the art director for Trek FM. You'll find the very famous Ninja Cat that uh, was a topic of conversation here on Standard Orbit uh, with the uh, previous hosts, Mike Schindler and Drew and, and Andy, when they were talking about Assignment Earth and Gary Seven's Ninja Cat Isis. You have the Monster Maroon team. Uh, you have the Trek FM logo. You have so many different ways to be able to wear it, wear it with pride, and even advertise Trek FM on a daily basis when you're walking around to school or to your game store. So please visit redbubble.com slash um, redbubble.com and type in Trek FM into the search field. And I can't thank enough, always, our associate producers for Standard Orbit. These are the people who have donated to patreon.com slash Trek FM at a certain level. And Renee Roberts and Richard Rutledge are our two associate producers for Standard Orbit. Thank you so much for your support. And you can find Renee on Twitter at MRES underscore 1701 and Richard at RUT8972. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on Trek FM slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page. You can go to speakpipe.com slash Trek FM and please leave us a voice message. We love the emails that we've received and we love all the feedback that we get on the Babel conference, but we would love to hear a voice message just to hear from you, our listeners that, you know, want to take the time and let us know how we're doing. You can also t- contact us through Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook, facebook.com slash Trek FM and the Babel Conference. Type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website on Trek FM and click discussion on your menu bar. The Babel Conference is actually really important to us. Jeff, can you tell our listeners what the Babel Conference is and what we do there as hosts in terms of interacting with all of our fans in the network? Well, it's a, it's a great place that we all get together with all the listeners and the hosts just all interact on this group. We share uh, interesting information about Star Trek, sometimes a little bit about uh, some other science fiction properties because we got the 602 Club, so that falls under uh, the Trek FM banner as well. Uh, and we just all talk about it, we discuss it, we share our ideas, we share our thoughts. Uh, some of the feedback that we get actually comes here onto the show uh we've had a few times where we've had uh some of the feedback that we've read uh from uh, previous shows and it's it's just a lot of fun i'm there all the time uh constantly interacting with people yeah the babel conference is it's that occasion where 
you think about like, you know what? I don't really have anyone to talk Star Trek with. The Babel Conference is where you want to be to talk Star Trek on a daily basis. So please join us there. That's B-A-B-E-L in your search field on Facebook. Now, Jeff, uh, if you'd like to let all of our listeners know how they can touch with you and especially where they can find the blog post that we were talking about today, which was the source of all the information that provided um, the architecture for today's podcast. Well, if you don't have access to an Antavacron and you don't have any red matter to create a rift in time and space, (laughs) uh, you can always find me on the Babel Conference on Facebook. Uh, Like I said, I'm on there all the time, uh, posting, reading. uh, I'm just constantly on there. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Harlander. And I'm also a supporter of the network through Patreon. Uh, I uh, started supporting the, the network on Patreon before... I ever uh, started coming on as a, a co-host or a guest host. Um, you can check out my uh, my website. It's been called The Grand Unified Theory of Star Trek at trekopedia.com. And the blog post that we were talking about here, uh, it's on my personal blog. And that is Jeffrey, it's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y dot the Harlands, T-H-E-H-A-R-L-A-N-S dot net slash blog. And it's currently it's the uh, the second story down. I just posted a new one today, but uh, there's a link at the top of the page, and it says essays on Star Trek. Just click on that, and you'll find it right there. There's a lot of other things that I've written on Star Trek on the blog as well. And when you read this blog, you will understand why we affectionately call Jeffrey here on Trek FM, Mister Ataz. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference. I also do post there daily and uh, engage in all the different discussions there with all of our listeners because you guys are amazing. And thank you so much for your feedback. And I can be found on Twitter at Starfighter1701. And along with being a host here for Standard Orbit, I am an executive producer on the network. And I am also a proud supporter of Trek FM as a patron through Patreon.com. Slash Trek FM. So thanks everyone for listening and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. Standard Orbit.